This week, we are pleased to welcome former FBI agent and whistleblower Steve Friend, who lost his gig at the FBI because he refused to bend to the J6 narrative. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. The FBI implemented a system known as, known as integrated program management about 10 years ago. And you have to think of it like a traffic cop with a ticket book. It is a quota system for the number of cases that they have to open, the number of arrests that they have to make, the specific tools that they have to use. And it's used around the country by all the 56 various field offices. They set the threat priorities and, and they set the agenda every fiscal year. It creates a perverse incentive structure within the FBI for multiple reasons. One, it's tied to their budget and they have to check the boxes on the number of cases to open and tools to use in order to justify the spending that they're going to do every year. And then there's also the tendency, the human tendency to work smarter and not harder. Well, why would I open up one case with four bad guys when I can open up four cases with one bad guy? And the FBI plays this game very much like a, a sales force that's working on its quarterly totals. And that is not just in the end result where they arrest people. It's the tools that they use and the timing of the way that they do that. It is not unusual to have conversations with agents in the FBI where they will talk about getting pressure from their supervisors to use a wiretap because the division hasn't used a wiretap this year. And we have to use a wiretap because it's part of our quota system. In my own personal experience, I've been told to delay indicting subjects because we already hit our numbers for the year, Steve. If you exceed them too much, then we're gonna to have to do more next year. So can you wait a couple months until the fiscal year calendar rolls over and we can indict those subjects then because then we can really hit the ground running next fiscal year. And as a result of that, you had potential subjects of, of criminal investigations that were putting the American people at risk of fraud and force for several months when we had the goods to put them into custody. And the grossest thing about all is that it's tied to exec executives, senior executive service members, SES within the FBI. They get compensation bonuses because these metrics have been hit in the amount of thirty to fifty thousand dollars. But I. I think of this as Toy Story. Yeah, I mean. And what's the song? I don't know. If, I don't know if that was a soundtrack before. You got a friend of me. Yeah. And what? What better way to start, right? We our guest Steve Friend, former FBI agent who's uh, currently a fellow fancy. on the. That's fancy. <laughs> Thank you. I work on these, Gary. I mean, if I can contribute anything. Steve Friend is in the studio. We're we're privileged to have you here, Steve. Steve is the voice you just heard in our introduction. Um, a compelling and chilling introduction to what's going on at the FBI, and we wanted to give Steve the opportunity. I, I understand that he's barnstorming Middle Tennessee after having barnstormed Arizona. Not just Middle Tennessee, all over Tennessee, all over Tennessee. across the state. And so, and you don't look any worse for wear, Steve. Welcome. No, it's been great here. I am uh, definitely appreciate the music. Friend in name only, though, apparently to the FBI. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they consider you a friend anymore. Well, huh? friend to the people. Though. 
Absolutely. That's uh, that. I mean, first to get serious for a minute, and that's that's all. Ultimately, what my prime directive has always been to uphold my oath of office and uh, make sure that I was standing in the gap to protect the people. And if the bad guy in that situation is the agency itself, then that's my job to stand there. Man. So, Steve, tell us why you're here. You've written a new book, and I, I want to give our audience kind of the broad scope of. What was the what was the moment that led to your uh, enlightenment? Right, your kind of your awakening as what to what was going on at the FBI, and what are you doing now to confront that? Well, I had uh, I, when I think back now, I've had uh, about a year and a few months to reflect on the entire thing, and it's sort of I didn't really had that watershed moment where all the scales fell away from my eyes at one time. Uh, my my career felt like always. Built to that moment, a believer in uh, in Book of Bester, and you were born for such a time as this. Yes, and I was a an FBI agent in the Midwest for seven and a half years, working violent crime. Got very familiar with the way that you're supposed to do criminal investigations, and then when I relocated uh, to Florida and was subsequently reassigned to work on the January six cases, uh, up to that point I hadn't done any investigating of it. Took it on good faith that my coworkers were doing a good job. But when I looked at them and I realized that the FBI, one, was departing from its rules for caring for investigations to manipulate their statistics mm-hmm. in, in keeping with that video that you showed. And secondly, was making the process the punishment. And in our case, we were going to send a SWAT team to arrest someone who had been interviewed a year and a half before. No contact since. And we we're sending SWAT to arrest him. And he said he would cooperate with us. And, and that is not in keeping with... Uh, the oath of office and with the training. In the, in the training FBI, you go to the Holocaust Memorial and the MLK Memorial, and you learn there that you have to throw the flag if you think that the FBI is off the rails because genocide and civil rights abuses can only happen when you just follow orders. So stop for a second to make sure that we understood what you just said. With regard to this particular case, the FBI had a J6 um, suspect that was cooperative, willing to be willing to cooperate, and yet, despite that, the FBI still asked you to go and, and conduct a raid? Yes. In our office, I, at the time I was assigned to Daytona Beach, it was the Jacksonville Division. Uh, I, I'd been a SWAT operator in my prior assignment in the Omaha field office. I was not a SWAT guy there, but it was a January 6th arrest. It was for a felony. But in, I having reviewed the case file when I got it, he said, if you need anything from me, I'll cooperate with you fully. And that's an all too common thing that we're seeing now with not just January 6th, but all across the board, the FBI sort of views itself as the judge, jury, and the executioner. And that's not its job. That's not its role. We saw that with Mark Houck in Philadelphia. He said he would cooperate, even though as farcical as a FACE Act violation was for him, he said, I'll cooperate, I'll surrender. But Jacqueline McGuire, special agent in charge of Philadelphia, sent 12 armed agents to arrest him at 6 o'clock in the morning. Same same thing happened here, interestingly. We've had Paul Vaughn on our show, who was arrested uh, by the because of the FACE Act here in Hickman County at gunpoint in front of his uh, wife and 11 children for ministering at an abortion clinic. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, won't replay all that story, but the idea that even at the time he's being arrested at gunpoint, um, there's really no, hardly any identifying information other than like this little Velcro badge that says FBI. And when the wife asked for any kind of identifying information, uh, they refused, said, we don't have to give you anything. We're the FBI. And just took this man out of his home at gunpoint. I mean, it's it, the story's crazy, but you're exp- describing 
the same situation. So seemingly, this is a much larger pattern than just this this one singular issue like we had on our show. They're almost a hammer in search of a nail, and it's a fundamental transition in a line of thinking that I've sort of come, come around to articulating it this way. In law enforcement, unlike in the private sector, especially like in the tech sphere where you have system disruptors that are coming out with a new app or the new tech that we're all saying, like, you're the hero, you're the new Henry Ford. But law enforcement is about system idealists. You have the Constitution, the rule of law, the, the policies and the procedures. You follow those to protect Americans from the system disruptors, and those are the criminals. And you follow that, and the fair process itself, as it's laid out in our Constitution, you're entitled to due process. You follow the fair process, follow the facts where they lead you, you bring a case forward, and then that person has their day in court. The victory is in the process for the government, but now they've transitioned to that's not enough. We have to put our thumb, if not our entire arm on the scale, to get the win. And that is atypical for what we've seen in law enforcement in this country going back to our founding. The, the victory is in the process, not in the outcome. When we listened to the – that was you being interviewed in our opening, you made the point that a lot of this is being driven by financial incentive. Tell us about how that works. And, and the, the part that stuck out to me that made my eyes open up wide is instead of opening up four cases against four different individuals, right? Why do that? You can open up one case, sorry, four cases, instead of opening one case against four individuals, right? Four times, you can open up four cases hit against one individual. Yeah, to hit that quota. That is chilling. It's, it's treating law enforcement like you're making widgets in a factory. Mm -hmm. And, and we can maybe remove the intent behind it as being nefarious at the beginning. You don't want an entire agent population being DMV workers sitting on their hands and not doing anything. You want to incentivize them to do it. But the problem is people work smarter and not harder. It's a bureaucracy. It's a self-looking ice cream cone. They are always trying to grow. Success <laughs> is, in, is in growth. You're going to have to f figure out a way to use that one again. Yes, got to remember that. <laughs> we'll give you credit for it too. <laughs> and as a result of that, you've perversely incentivized, inverted the, the incentive structure within law enforcement because you elect the sheriff to bring the crime down. But now, because it's tied to the budget, the FBI wants to bring the crime numbers up and go to Congress and say, you gave us $10 billion. Look how much good we did. Why don't you give us $11 billion? And when we focus in on January 6th, that is the boondoggle because typically that is one incident. It should be open as one case with however many subjects we investigate in Washington, D.C. But instead, the departure came where they said we're opening a separate case for every single person. And as opposed to investigating them in Washington, D.C., wherever they lived, they were assigned to be investigated from that office. So we're in Middle Tennessee now. You would be investigated as a domestic terrorist by the FBI Memphis office. So now we've taken one case and turned it into 1,000 and spread them around to all 56 field offices. So we have a political narrative that domestic terrorism is on the rise, as we've seen from all our politicians screaming about. Because of all the cases that have been opened. And all 56 special agents in charge are getting their bonuses. Wow. Meanwhile... The opposite is happening with true crime. Whether you take it the state of California, um, state of New York, they take the definition of what used to be crimes and they change the definitions in order to make it look like crime is going down. Whether in the state of California, Gavin Newsom has become famous for this. As you're letting career criminals out of prison, as you are, um, you know, they, they get arrested and released, arrested and released in the immigration standpoint. But this is done. I'm just I'm just trying to process this in my mind. 
while crime is being redefined as not happening in those states at the federal level against American citizens, it's being increased to make it look like that. And so you can see how that's changing the scales, right? So-called domestic terrorism, which is nothing other than an excuse to persecute and prosecute Americans for abiding by the Constitution and, and, and declaring their rights as free men, increases. Well, it's, it's worse than that when it comes to the way that the mission creep has set in with domestic terrorism. So we had the emergence of the term domestic violent extremist that mm -hmm. has been percolating throughout the media for a number of years. We have a new one now. Well, it's been around for a few years on the inside, but it was just released. It's an acronym called the ANAGAVE, which is an anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremist. And if you read what the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security co-authored this memorandum explaining what is the profile of an agave, that is someone with a perception of government overreach, negligence, or illegitimacy. Merely a perception. And you could be in the crosshairs of investigation from the FBI as a domestic terrorist. Again, I've used this term already twice. Chilling. It seems like we're in old days of communist Soviet Union. It seems like we are in communist Cuba with political prisoners. It seems like we're in CCP, you know, co Chinese Communist Party. Only a government that fears the people would do something like this, right? They've completely inverted um, the way that we look at freedom and of course we're supposed to suspect government. That was how our country was founded, right? On the notion that government should always be suspected. That's how you keep people free. And yet our own government is changing the definition and trying to treat it through its vanguard in the media and all of its friends, as Mark Levin always calls them, the, the Praetorian Guard media. They are advancing this false narrative that if you suspect the government, you are the bad guy. They've turned it on its head. The question ultimately comes down to why do we have laws? Do we have laws to set up guardrails for a just and moral society to protect the innocents from the evildoers, to set up a system of justice for victims? Or do we have laws to give more ammunition for law enforcement and for prosecutors to go after citizens? And now it's the latter. And that is not traditionally how we've done things in this country. Well, I want to get your perspective on that like how how pervasive is that through the fbi but i want to lead into that by stating a few quotes that have been said about you i just pulled up a few articles this is from 2022 and um ernie tabaldi who's a retired agent from san francisco uh said it's time to stop the fbi from being the enforcer of a political party's ideology uh terry turchie former deputy assistant director of the fbi's counterterrorism division describes friend yourself uh, as a model example of what FBI agents nationwide should be. Uh, further stating, no real FBI agent would defend the position of using SWAT teams to arrest nonviolent senior citizens and others with political opinions not currently tolerated by this administration. One more quote by former special agent David Baldivin, who we've had here on this show, who expressed this similar sentiment, and I want to hear what you have to say. Baldwin expressed... Thanks to Friend for having the courage to say hell no to the current bunch of FBI bureaucrats and tyrants. And that, that's an interesting quote from him because we had that conversation with Baldwin in the studio on what what is – is this pervasive thought through the FBI? Like in other words, I guess a better way to phrase the question is how much of there are you in the FBI yeah, and, and how much thing. are not? Because – 
you know, according to David's assessment, he sees a vast change that has happened. Um, you know, these quotes that are praising you are from retired agents, you know, not folks necessarily in the bureaucracy that you that you exited out of just a few years ago. What's your thoughts on that? What's your perspective on the FBI as a whole? Where where are we? How much should we be concerned about how far it's gone? I think you should be concerned to the extent that we need to have a serious conversation about eliminating the agency entirely. The conversation that we have all too often in conservative media, uh, elected politicians, especially on the right, they love to throw out that this is a problem at the top. There's still a lot of good men and women in the FBI, and, and we need to be there to support them. I disagree with that wholly. And not because they are bad people per se, but it's people who are willing to delude themselves and dismiss the training that they got where they were supposed to go to the Holocaust Memorial and the MLK Memorial, as we all did. And you learn there that you throw the flag because the banality of evil is real. And those sorts of atrocities happen when you're unwilling to do that and you just follow orders. And saying something like, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I have bills to pay and I have obligations. That's an insufficient response. You swore an oath. I'm just doing my job. Just doing my job is wholly inappropriate. And you were supposed to be vetted as a person of fidelity, bravery, and integrity. And you were supposed to be able to stand up and resist that temptation. That is why we give you a position of public trust and a gun and a badge to go forth and enforce the law. And now you're just following orders. That's not appropriate. And there's too many people that are willing to do that. And I say that as people – I know people back in the FBI who – and I lost friends over this. Um, and even people who I still consider friends have definitely cut down on their communications with me. And I think that there's a fear aspect to it. They, they just want to keep their head down. But again, that's not your job. Your, my job, people said, you know, you, you made a sacrifice. I've always said that my job was to do what I did, and that was to throw the flag. That was the job, so I did the job. And unfortunately, people now are just about preserving their paycheck and their pension. When you said fidelity, too, the task is fidelity to the Constitution, but what we see now is fidelity to the agency, just like we see in other agencies. And the, D the Department of Defense has been leading the charge on this, right? I was Obey your commanding officer, not the Constitution. I was actually going to ask that question on um, almost exactly the way you said it. Whenever you're sworn in as an agent, who do you pledge fidelity to? Like, do you swear an oath to the agency or to the Constitution? You swear an oath to the Constitution, very similar to the one you would have in the military. In the military. And in my actual interactions when I came forward with my senior leadership up the chain of command with my concerns, we had this specific conversation. And I said, I have the training and I have an oath of office. And the, re the response that I got from an assistant special agent in charge in Jacksonville, Colt Markovsky, he said, you have an oath. But you have an obligation to do what we tell you to do. Your obligations to the FBI. What? That's just outrageous, and, and and the fact that he could say that Bothersome. with a straight face shows you that he has already been his own integrity has been diluted. Right? His integrity has been diluted. His duty to the FBI first, and, and that's really the first commandment in the FBI is don't embarrass or make the FBI look bad, as opposed to doing <laughs> their course. real job. And then there's a there's a I think they take the same oath in the in the legislature here in Tennessee. <laughs> there's a structural born problem. of insecurity, by the way. That's all that is. Then there's another structural problem that I've I've kind of articulated, like the the FBI is like a, a pyramid, like any bureaucracy or, or chain of command. It's not a ladder, 
But as you get closer to the top of the pyramid, it's a smaller cadre of people, and there's a lot of political capture at that level, and they're able to sort of move the chess pieces around the board. But because of the pyramid, as you go to the bottom, it's spread out so wide that they can compartmentalize your responsibilities. And unless you are a responsible person who takes a step back to look at the full mosaic and realize what's going on, you can just keep your head down and do something. So specifically to me, on that January 6th case, they said, Steve, your only job is to transport this guy to court. Take him from when we have him arrested, take him to court. And for me, I took a step back and said, I might not be dropping the Zyklon B tablet into the chamber, but I'm putting him on the train. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And it, mm-hmm. and it brings me to this question. I have – my wife and I have a, a very close family friend whose son graduated from college two or three years ago and joined the FBI. And – we have talked privately about our concerns for that, not that we don't want good men of integrity joining the FBI, but our perception and our concerns have been, does he have any clue as to what he's getting into? What would your advice be to a young man who has entered the FBI, a man with, as far as we can tell, with the integrity of Christ, right, innocent enough going in, but I don't think is really aware of the depths of the depravity of the agency. I've been asked this by a few young guys that were thinking about going that route, and I think you have to ask the question, do you want to be an FBI agent or do you want to do the job of what an FBI agent is supposed to do? If you want to be an FBI agent, you're going to join this bureaucracy, and it's a sweet gig. You get paid about $130,000 a year. You have uh, once you get senior about midway through your career, twenty six paid days off, thirteen sick days off, eleven paid holidays, and now you get three paid hours a week for exercise, three paid hours a week for mental wellness, mm. or you want to do law enforcement, and you can do that and impact your local community as a state trooper, as a sheriff's deputy, as a police officer. Uh, and I, I mean, I made it through the vetting process, I think, by mistake, because I really believed that I was joining the NFL of law enforcement. <laughs> and was and I had the opportunity working on Indian reservations to actually do that. That's the perception, though. I mean, I think that's true. That's really the perception of everybody. Out or it there. used it, to be, right? Yeah, I mean, if, you, really cool. if you're in the FBI, man, you, you, re, you did it. Yeah. Most FBI agents never go to court. Many never arrest anyone in their entire career. Even now? Even now, especially when you have significant portions uh, who are doing national security work. If it's counterterrorism or counterintelligence, their goal is not actually to arrest anyone. It's just to start domestic intelligence investigations so that they can learn about people. Brings up a good question. How much of the real crime is being neglected while we focus all of the efforts of the FBI on the innocent? While they're learning about yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, and this, this is back also to the quota system because they go through a what they call threat review prioritization, where they prioritize where they want to put their resources. Uh, And when I originally went to Florida to work on child pornography, human trafficking cases, officially did that for only a few months. And then they said, that's a local priority. You're not to work on that anymore. You're supposed to work on domestic terrorism, which would mean January 6th cases. And and look, it's an organization they have limited bandwidth, limited resources. They have to put it where it is. But I think there's a misplaced priority on they're chasing the clout that gets them the good press release or gets them what the politicians want to see them say. And they're ignoring righteous investigations because they're worried about quantity over quality. So talking about January 6th, I'd I'd like your perspective on – because I'm I'm so – as an everyday guy, I'm confused when Speaker Johnson – took office in the House, all of a sudden we got access, right, to all of this 
footage. That was under Johnson, right? Yeah. No, McCarthy didn't yeah. do that. Yeah. So we finally have access to all of this footage, uh, many of which, uh, again, I can't speak to all the details. I can only sort of say what's been presented to me on Twitter and clips, you know, but, but looks as if you have clips where the Capitol Police and whatever other law enforcement is there is escorting people into the building, letting them in in, in several different areas. With the video that's available now, how are we even – how is it possible? That's what I don't understand, and maybe – I don't know if anybody can answer that. How is it possible that, we're, that we are still here, that men and women are still being held without trial, that, that people are still being arrested by the FBI and, and prosecuted based on largely what I see now is, is the conspiracy theories were true, that – members of our own government were in on it and that people were being ushered in to the building by law enforcement. Now that that video is out, how are, how are we still in the place that we've been in since January 6th? I think we're in an age of narrow casting rather than broadcasting, and people can then filter in the sort of content they want to consume, be it through media, news, or social media. And January 6th is this Rorschach test, and most people, whatever they assume was happening that day, they only want to see what they mm -hmm. see. And they're not taking a step back again and looking that there might have been different narratives throughout the building. It's a large complex. There are different stories throughout the entire building. And generally, this is how I describe what I believe happened on January 6th. And this is as someone who's an investigator, who's a fact finder. I don't have an agenda on this one. I think there were people that engaged in illegal activity and stupid activity that righteously should be prosecuted for that. I think that there were people who were paid informants and, and undercovers, who were provocateurs, who were driving people to do things that they were not predisposed to do. I think that there were guys that went there after sitting home for 2020 and watching the country burn from BLM and Antifa protests, and they thought, I'm going to give these Antifa guys the butt whipping their daddy never gave them, which you should never do. You should never go somewhere intending to engage in violence. But that's why they were dressed in their body armor and their helmets. They didn't bring guns, but they wanted to get into a physical confrontation. And then the largest constituency of people who were involved, I call the Miracle on 34th Street crowd. Because if you've seen that movie, you know they bring the letters to Santa Claus in to convince the judge by sheer volume mm -hmm. the existence of Santa. And I think people went there to hear the sitting president speak. They had righteous and legitimate questions about the outcome of the 2020 election. And they thought, I'm going to exercise my First Amendment right and I'm going to protest and speak and petition my redresses against mm -hmm. my, my Congress. And I will walk through the building peacefully and they will see the, the sheer demonstration of hundreds of thousands of Americans and they will pause and do an audit. And those are the people that have been caught up in the dragnet as they've been loosely interpreting the law with obstruction of an official proceeding. Or more recently, with Matthew Graves saying, if you didn't even go in the building but stood on the lawn outside, we're going to charge you with a crime. And if you think about that in contrast to, I don't know if you saw, Gary, this week, <clears throat> um, and Steve, maybe you did, but all the hullabaloo at uh, Reagan Airport where the pro-Hamas supporters were blocking traffic and the airport authority actually put out a tweet that said, just be careful out there because these people, these pro-Hamas supporters, are just exercising their First Amendment rights, which they don't have the right to do, right? You don't have the right to block traffic in order to, quote-unquote, uh, exercise your First Amendment. So clearly you have the government and government authorities engaged in what would be criminal activity, right? At least misdemeanors, right, in that case – being ignored, being celebrated, while the target is on the old ladies 
and pardon to the old ladies who they were, but they probably wouldn't mind us describing that. But walking through the Capitol, taking pictures, right? There, there's such an abundance of evidence that how could a judge – and this is a rhetorical question I know – how could any judge look at those, some of those who have been prosecuted and, and who are on trial, who have done more, nothing more than walk through the Capitol with their cameras taking pictures? How do we explain that other than intentional – deliberate political persecution you really can't be and, that, and that's really the i think a, a legitimate objection to what you see with january 6th if they were charging those people at the airport similarly to whether they're charging people with january 6th i think you'd have way less pushback on it but i mean we're, we're now 12 days after a bunch of pro hamas rioters tried to storm the white house and we forgot about it an hour later mm-hmm. which shows you what the media covers right selective or, or selection bias. The media covers what they want to cover, ignores other things that might contradict their narrative. The media covers a group of guys called Patriot Front who put on khaki pants, blue yeah, shirts, and masks frogs. and then engage in constitutionally legal protected activity of marching around with high knees like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> That's legal. You're, you can. It's totally lawful to be an idiot right. in America. I don't know. For some people, I suppose it is. Uh, not for everybody. I wanted to bring up too, you know, since you've been fighting this fight. I mean, you're being you you have been and you're being persecuted for uh, espousing your beliefs about freedom and not using a police state uh, against Americans. Last year, when you were suspended without pay, uh, you sat before a House Judiciary Subcommittee, and um, FBI Acting Assistant Director Christopher Dunham had this to say about you in terms of why you were being suspended and why your clearance was revoked. The security concerns stem from your refusal to execute a court-ordered arrest warrant, unauthorized download of sensitive FBI information, failure to participate in a security awareness briefing, unauthorized dissemination of sensitive FBI information, unauthorized recording of executive management, unsanctioned interviews with the media, and lack of candor during an interview with the security division. How long do you have for this one? Oh, um, we've got time. I want right. to hear this. <laughs> so here, here's what happened. This is the FBI has found the hack around uh, whistleblower protections. And the hack is the security clearance. They can suspend your security clearance because it's national security. They really don't need a legitimate reason. They can just say you have questionable loyalty, you've engaged in questionable activity. They pull your security clearance. You're still an employee. You're unpaid and you can't go to work. And now they've got you in a vice where they try to bleed you white financially. So my security clearance was not suspended for whistleblowing. It was suspended for the following. They said that you refused to participate in this January 6th arrest. I said I had problems with it. And they said, you are not allowed to come to work during that. You were to report yourself AWOL, which I did. Then they said, you have to participate in a security awareness briefing. And I had never heard that. And I said, what is that? And they said, well, it's additional duplicative training about how to use FBI technology. And I asked why I had to do it again if I'd already done it. And they said, well, you made different decisions than other people. It's, so so it's, it's retraining. Yes. For, for those who have not succumbed to the initial training. And it's, it was using FBI technology. And I asked, well, I said, well, if, if it's unique to me, can I have my attorney? Because it sounds like it might be disciplinary. And they said, no. And I said, can I have documentation that says I can't have an attorney that I can bring to him and then I'll come? And they said, yes. But I was suspended like two days later, so I never had the opportunity. And then I will plead guilty to improperly accessing FBI materials. It was the employee handbook 
which oh, I accessed. Oh my gosh, Gary. I can't believe we have Steve on this program. He he accessed the employee handbook for the FBI, and that's what they're saying is they house the unauthorized. They uh, they are uh, they have the unclassified employee handbook housed on a classified system. I suppose I could have printed it off and sent the whole thing to my attorney, but I thought it would be better if I used the FBI approved jump drive that they gave me to put it and then email to him that unclassified document. To transfer an unclassified document. And right. and then there was the uh, the last component about unauthorized interviews with the media. I put in a request to, to speak to the media about my whistleblowing, which uh, the whistleblower disclosure was released by Senator Grassley to the media, so there was nothing that wasn't in the public sphere. I got their permission and then did so, and then they came back and said, well, you needed our permission every single time you talked to the media about this. Of course. If there's anything positive that comes out of this, in my view, it's the pettiness of the FBI because you, what you have forced them to do and what others who are, who are standing up like you are, Steve, it's forcing the FBI to go to these ridiculous lengths to substantiate their position. Well, and, and those lengths are so absurd. It's the process Petty. is the punishment. But, That's but, what they're doing. Yes, but, but that process now, they're having to admit that we don't have any real reasons, right? We have to make up reasons. And the more that Americans see that, yes, I know the FBI has its current power. But there is such disregard for federal law enforcement, for law enforcement, unfortunately, in, in general, because of what has happened, but as specifically for federal law enforcement, and they've done it to themselves. Here, here's something that I think all your listeners should know about, and it, it, it's what the FBI is now willing to do to its own people. So another whistleblower has come forward and said that they are on the hunt for whistleblowers. They've actually got between one and 300 temporary agents assigned to the security division to hunt whistleblowers. Wow. What is the profile of a whistleblower? It's someone who they believe might be a conservative, who has lots of, of children, course. who is a military veteran, who is unvaccinated against coronavirus, who doesn't want to wear a wow. mask, and attends religious worship ceremonies <gasps> regularly. No, not that. That. If that's you, the the piece de resistance. That's for that's, their own that's people. The bad one. What are they willing to do to you if you're not an insider? Three hundred agents assigned to that task to to go after whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers. And then you combine that with a new training that the FBI put out bureau wide, where typically they had separate trainings for these two activities: how to be a whistleblower if you want to do that, and then how to find insider threats like the Robert Hansen mole types that are taking sensitive material to Russia. Be on the lookout for that guy. They combined them this year, and they said that a whistleblower is an insider threat to us. Again, I find this very encouraging because they are losing control, right? It's like whack-a-mole for them now. They're realizing that their ridiculous activity is resulting in pushback, and now they're having to use more and more energy to go after the people who are exposing them. I think that's a positive. I know despite all of the the chilling effect of what they're trying to do, I suggest that they're losing. It's a battle that we must continue to take because I think they're going to lose. What, what's, your, what's your status right now? I had to resign the day I testified in, for a deposition for a transcribed interview. My attorneys told me I wasn't planning to resign, but they were fairly confident the FBI was going to try to charge me with a crime if I didn't. So I, I resigned to do that and announced that to the Congress when I told them that. Uh, the revocation of permanent revocation of my security clearance happened the night before I did my public testimony. Uh, it was revoked, leaked to the media to coincide with my 
statement in front of Congress so that they could have the talking point of, well, he has a revoked security clearance. And that's why I actually got seven minutes for my opening statement and not five. That was my reward. Hmm. So got fired, um, of course, under threat of being prosecuted. And now, you know, you're, you're writing a book. You're here in Tennessee now traveling and speaking, informing folks on what's really going on. But what, what do you see? I mean, I'm just looking at you as a guy that I, I mean, frankly, I wish you were in that seat. I wish you were in Christopher Ray's position. You yeah. know? I mean, we need, you know, if we are not going to dissolve the agency, you know, at the very least, we must insist that we have men and women who are devout to the Constitution. Uh, and by the way, to God, I, I, might, I might say, that are running administrations like that. So now that you're not in that space and you're, you're still creating awareness, what, what do you think is coming for you? What, what do you think, not, not from someone else, from someone <laughs> else, but, but what, do you, what do you think the Lord has for you? Where do you, where do you see yourself taking this? How, how, in other words, Steve, I'm looking to you as a guy like, how do we freaking fix this? You know, I, I think I'm in a unique position because I've brought the receipts on so many of these problems and I could maybe get them to people who have the gumption or the fortitude to bring about real change. And I've been able to construct in my mind proposals if we're not going to do away with the FBI, which would be my preference. This country existed before. It can exist after. Mm -hmm. We're not in the days of Bonnie and Clyde. Texas and Oklahoma state authorities, they can work together. If right. somebody robs a bank, they don't say all oxen free and cross state lines. But I have proposed and I think that I have the, the background to bring an idea forward that I would like to see implemented. And that would be we need to disarm the FBI entirely and make it a as its origin was, an unarmed Bureau of Investigation. I think most agencies, if they have any sort of enforcement mechanism, should be unarmed. And then we empower Locals. the local yeah. deputies yes. and give them cross-deputized federal authorities because those are the real police. Those are the guys that know the usual suspects. They have the experience. And they're incentivized, unlike a quota system from the Hoover Building, to bring crime down. And I, I think if I can get into the ear of federally elected officials, or more importantly, state elected officials, I have that idea. And then I have other uh, suggestions that I could make in a legislative session to set up some certain guardrails and speed bumps to stop an out-of-control FBI. And that's going to be my mission going forward, because I think that uh, I, I'm in as unique position as I am. I never intended to be here. I, I think that's an incredibly constitutional solution. I mean, in fact, the only agencies that would have constitutional authority to use police power inferred by the 10th Amendment would be the local agencies. I mean, this idea that that right now we have a federal police force uh, that has armed itself against its own citizens to police federally, there's no enumerated power in the Constitution that gives the federal government to do any of that. Um, doesn't say it can investigate. I, I, so I think, I think it's certainly a more constitutional agency that is truly an investigative agency. And by the way, I just didn't know that history is that, is that how they started. So at, at the beginning, federal agents were not armed. They claimed that they began in 1908. It wasn't the FBI then. It was the Bureau of Investigations. The origin of the FBI is a half-page document from an attorney general that basically says, we're going to start this thing. And it was unarmed. And it was essentially for domestic intelligence collection, which right. they've now evolved into, <clears throat> but they have the force of the gun. I think if you made them a, a, almost like an MI5, a domestic intelligence for law enforcement, for tactical and operational purposes, and then had them liaise with local agencies and empower those guys to actually affect the arrest and then gave a sheriff the ability to direct resources and say, I know he has a Gadsden flag waving. I'm not interested in you investigating him for that. 
uh, but I have a problem with fentanyl pouring over the border, so we're going to address that in my community because other, if I don't do that, my constituents are going to boot me out of office. I almost compare it to the way we used to elect senators in the country where they came from the state the house. States. We yeah. are now empower—we're not defunding the police. We're empowering local police. I it's, love that, Steve. It's the whole arming of an agency <clears throat> exploded during the Obama administration because it wasn't just what we would typically— think of as police-type agencies, the FBI, but it was Department of Education got a bunch of arms and ammunition. And all of these, um, I, I can't go down the list, but I just remember when it was released at the time, we're thinking, why in the world would the Department of Education need an enforcement division? Why would they need to have effectively their own SWAT teams? You see this throughout the entire government, which that is the biggest threat to our liberties because you have these agencies, executive agencies, unelected, appointed individuals, and, you know, the old power of the badge and a gun, right? That's a huge threat. So not only disarming the FBI, but disarming all of these other agencies as well. I would disarm every agency with the exception of a U.S. Marshals just so yes. they could be there to deputize locals yep. and then handle fugitives or the court system. And I think there's another component here that the FBI – Homeland Security, anyone that's dealing in a national security sphere. Because currently we have deputization of locals and they're brought into a joint terrorism task force. Here's the problem with that, and this is something that could be done at a state level. The states should say no state-certified law enforcement agency or officer can go to work and liaise with the feds in a national security role, only criminal. And I say that because if I'm a sheriff and I send a deputy to go work on the JTTF with the FBI, he's going to be working on cases. And if I call my deputy up and say, hey, buddy, what you working on? He's going to say, I can't talk to you about it. Mm. And well, I don't have any supervision of my own people. Well, and that would also – that's sort of a uh, – constitutionally, that's an anti-commandeering you know, issue. That's, that, that's, that would be the federal government commandeering state resources for federal work. I mean we shouldn't be doing that at all. So with that – I think that leads into a question. What what can we do? Before we started the show, we we briefly talked a little bit about some ideas you had or things maybe that that state legislatures you know could do. What w without federally disbanding or disarming the FBI? What are some things that perhaps could we could do in the state house? You know, to start protecting ourselves from government overreach through a through a police state through the FBI. Well, I think that pulling the people back from the national security aspect yeah. of it is, is big. And I also think that there needs to be a requirement uh, on any agency that's certified by the state of Tennessee that you can't liaise or cooperate in any way with a federal agency unless they do the following. They take training on Tennessee constitutional law because they should respect our laws if they're going to work with us. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you want to get really really fun with it. Say, you have a firearm and you're going to be working with our people. We want to make sure you're proficient with that firearm. Why aren't you passing our state firearms qualification? I think you'll be surprised the number of FBI agents that would struggle with that. Uh, and I, th I think that we need to encourage our sheriffs to have courage of their conviction if they see what's going on and they're unhappy with it. There's a lot of funds attached to working with the FBI and the federal government. Okay. They have to be willing to resist that and say, uh, I I'm not going to use my people. I'm not going to cooperate. And there's a supremacy clause. Obviously, the FBI can still come and, and work within your, your area. However, they will push where there's mush. The FBI has this quota system, and I can tell you in my area in Daytona Beach, four counties— one million citizens, eight special agents to police. 
you cannot work without the cooperation of the locals. And the FBI, if you have a sheriff say, you, I'm not going to cooperate with you, with you, they have to get their numbers from somewhere. They'll go where they're going to get cooperation, and they will leave the hardened, fortified areas. And then last, I would say at a county level especially, I had the opportunity to help out with a county Bill of Rights ordinance that was passed. It was a sanctuary county for the Bill of Rights. And the county board of supervisors passed this ordinance. The sheriff bought in on it and they said, if the feds or even the state comes in and wants to enforce something that we believe violates our citizens' Bill of Rights, our sheriff will stand in the gap and he'll actually affect an arrest on those people. Whoa. What state was that done in? I'm just curious. This was in Florida, the Collier County, Naples area. They okay. asked me to come down and speak on that behalf and it passed four to one. That's great. Yeah, that's Gary and I have talked on this program before about two things which you hit upon. One is follow the money, right? Just as the federal government really corrupts any kind of independence in the state by funding everything and, and our local legislatures become dependent upon that. And their their comment is always, Well, we can't say no to the feds now because we get, you know, X what, forty percent of our forty as as of last fiscal year, forty percent of our state budget was federal money. So the same thing applies in law enforcement. The other thing you you touched upon, Steve, is that sheriffs, Gary and I have been, um, we've, we've kind of dug deep and talked about this as well. The sheriff is such an important figure. It's one of the last men to protect us against an overreaching federal government. Whoops, I said overreaching. Now I'm probably, what'd you say, agave? You're an agave. <laughs> because I perceive that the government <laughs> is overreaching. No kidding. Getting the right men and women in the sheriff's departments, right, who understand that is not just a great responsibility, but a great opportunity to protect your community. The power that a sheriff has, if he's willing to exercise it, is incredible. I agree with that. And I think that take one of the counties that I dealt with in Daytona Beach area, the sheriff was unhappy with how the FBI was comporting itself, pulled his people out, said, you're not going to work with the FBI anymore. And now... Essentially, that, that county has become a quasi-sanctuary from the FBI because they, they don't, they're not going to get cooperation. They're not going to get intelligence. They're going to work smarter and not harder. They're going to go where things are more fruitful. And you said push where there's mush or push to mush? Push where there's mush. They're going to go. That's and and I think one. ultimately we will force the FBI to force uh, to work in large cities that are typically blue uh, because if they're not going to get cooperation from the exterior red areas, uh, the days are not long before they're going to bring a case, a righteous case, in a red area. And that jury will acquit immediately and say the FBI probably entrapped him. So okay. what we need to do here at the state level is make sure there's this little mush. Exactly. As possible. They need to be doing their, figuratively speaking, their sit-ups, right? Their their political sit-ups, their intellectual sit-ups. Their to, patriot front high knees. Yeah. I would, ima <laughs> I would imagine if we were able to get something like that moving here in Tennessee, you would be available to come testify before our committees here in the any in the amount house. of clout that I have uh, I will put it behind this effort because I um, at my heart I'm a doctrine of the lesser magistrate fan and I think that it all should mm. come from the states Love great it. tell us about where our audience can get your book give us the title and website link you can go to Amazon. Uh, they're, they're the king of everything. I'm sorry, Jeff Bezos is just going to have to take his cut. Uh, but the <laughs> book is called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. The FBI tried to have me censor significant portions of it, including the transcript that they 
eventually revoked my clearance over. I recorded my conversations with the senior executives who told me that I had an oath, but my duty was to the FBI. That's all included in that. You can find that on Amazon. It's also pinned to the top of my social media profile. Also on X, it's at Real Steve Friend. And I talk about this all the time with uh, with my podcast itself, which is the American Radicals podcast on Rumble. Awesome. So, so I would imagine, you know, earlier you had you talked about these 300 agents that were looking for inside, you know, whistleblowers, and there was this list of criteria. I, I would imagine uh, if those FBI agents are found to be listening to your podcast and listening maybe to the Freedom Matters podcast, that, that might throw up a red flag as to whether or not they might be a potential whistleblower. I think you're a banded threat at this point. <laughs> High prioritization. Uh, and I always take comfort in knowing that there's going to be one thumbs down on my Rumble channel. And I always figured that it's from the security division of the FBI. Well, I, I look at it as an opportunity, Gary. That means there's maybe 300 more people listening to our podcast. That's right. Maybe so. That's, that's good. Well, Steve, it was a, 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 not just a pleasure, but uh, an honor uh, to have you on our show. Thank you for your service to our country. Thank you uh, for your diligent submission to and uh, willingness to defend our Constitution, even under persecution and threat of prosecution. And um, so it's a pleasure, man. P- pleasure to have a patriot on the show today. And, uh, welcome welcome to Tennessee. Well, come back anytime. Yeah, thanks, Speed. <clears throat> thanks, Steve. <clears throat> Let me say that again. Is that going to be another one of those? Yeah. I was going to say, thanks, Steve. Godspeed. And I said, thanks, Speed. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it.